Thank you very much, Bobby. It's great to be here in Green Bay with you all. I, uh, I'm told I brought the warm weather, so you ought to be thankful that I came here. My wife texted me it was 80 degrees in California. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but it's, it's true. So when I get back there, I'm going to preach on hell. So uh, <laughs> one of the things I shared with the guys here yesterday, and it's a firm conviction of mine from my own life experience and, and right out of the pages of Scripture, everybody here is on a spiritual journey because every person is on a spiritual journey. God created us. He created us to know him and enjoy him. And life is about the journey of coming to know God, experiencing him, and the life that he's come to give us. Now, some of us understand that, and and the reason we're here this morning is because our lives have been transformed through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we want to continue to grow to know Christ more and experience more of his life and and to share that life with others. Others of us maybe are here this morning, and and we would be like what the Bible calls prodigals. Maybe in our early years, we were taught these truths, and we learned them from our parents and from our church, but somewhere along the way, we kind of got disengaged, disconnected, and and maybe we're on a journey back into a relationship with God. Maybe some of us here aren't even convinced that what I just said is true. Uh, Maybe you're here as a guest, as a friend, as a seeker, uh, someone who is asking yourself, is God real? And, and if he is, can I really know him? And, and what would that really look like? Uh, a lot of people assume because I'm a pastor and I've been a professor at a Bible school and seminary for the past 25 years that, you know, I must be the son of a pastor, the grandson of a pastor, going all the way back to one of the apostles. But uh, that's really not true. I, I was not raised in a religious home at all. In fact, we were completely unchurched. Uh, I didn't even begin to think about God in a serious way until my later teen years. Uh, I wasn't an atheist. It wasn't like I didn't believe in God. Uh, in fact, I would have considered myself a happy pagan. Uh, my, my, my kind of worldview was that there was a God, and, and probably he was like a college professor who graded on the curve. Uh, you know what the curve is? You know, there's an objective way of grading in, in school where it's on a percentage basis, and then the curve is where the professor gives an exam or he grades papers, and you're really being compared to the other students in the class. So if an exam is given, the, the, the grades are then received, and you look at all the different scores that students receive in the class, and, and generally there's like this standard bell curve. There's a median where someone is kind of like right at the middle, and half of the class does better than that person, and half of the class does worse than that person. And so you start with that median, and then you kind of put on this side, you know, C, B, A, and on this side, you know, D, F. So I always thought God was like that. He looked at our whole life, and he was the only one who could really do that. He looked at our good deeds and our bad deeds, and if our good deeds outweighed our bad deeds, then at the end, you know, we'd make it to heaven. But if our bad deeds outweighed our good deeds, then, you know, we'd go to the other place. Um, And it was very convenient for me to think that way. Because how did I think of myself? As a good person. So I just thought, you know, I'm not really religious, but I believe in God, and I'm basically a good person, so God will kind of weigh all that out, and and I'll make it. It wasn't until, you know, 16, 17 years old that someone shared with me that was really not God's plan at all. In fact, the truth was that I had a a problem, and we all had a problem, and it separated us from God, and, and nothing I could do was ever good enough, and I couldn't do it enough to actually measure up, but God loved me so much 
that he sent his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life, to die in my place on the cross, and to be raised from the dead. It's a basic good news message of Jesus. I didn't, I'd never heard that somewhere along the line. It wasn't until I was, like I said, 16, 17 years old, someone explained that to me. And so I decided I want to figure this out for myself, so I began to read the Bible. And when I began to read the Bible, the the words of Scripture just jumped off the page, and it resonated, and I increasingly became convinced that what was shared with me really was the truth, that Jesus was who he says he was. He was the Son of God, and he did what uh, the Bible said he did. He died for my sins, and he rose again from the dead, and that I needed to receive him into my life. And that was the really beginning of my personal relationship with God when I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior and and realized it wasn't about what I did or didn't do, it was about what Jesus had done for me because of his great love for me. Now, my adult life has been lived as a follower of Jesus Christ, trying to learn how to walk in his steps, how to grow in my relationship with him, how to live like Jesus. You've got to begin with receiving Christ into your life, coming to know Christ, experiencing Christ, but then the beginning is just that. It's the beginning. Then there's a bunch of other steps that follow. It's living like Jesus. The Bible actually tells us what that looks like. And what I want to unpack for you in the next uh, few minutes is how do we live like Jesus? Uh, Troy told me that you guys are in this series uh, looking at uh, truths from the Gospel of Matthew. And so I want to share from Matthew chapter 9 around this whole theme of living like Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. From this passage, I want to try to develop four ideas with respect to what does it mean to live like Jesus. And here they are. We need to see as Jesus saw. We need to feel as Jesus felt, we need to pray as Jesus prayed, and then we need to do as Jesus did. So here's the first one. We need to see as Jesus saw. This passage tells us Jesus came into this city, this gathering, huge crowds were were everywhere Jesus appeared because he spoke with authority and he healed people and he touched people with God's love and he restored people physically and spiritually. So people came to be around Jesus. He, He came into this crowd And he saw them distressed and downcast, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he saw them as a harvest that was plentiful. 
You know, when Jesus saw people, he saw them for who they really were. He looked beyond the facade and he saw their hearts. You know, that's true today. This morning, whatever presenting self you are coming to church with, and you know, I've been doing this for 35 years, you know, so I, I, I know how just getting to church sometimes can be a trial, right? Getting the kids ready, getting things together, you and your wife having this right, 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 right back, and then you come up and go, hi, good to see you, God bless you, brother. Hi, how are you? Yes, <laughs> praise the Lord. Jesus sees, he sees everything. He sees our hearts. He sees us as we really are. This morning, Jesus sees you. And that's not something to be frightened of. That's something to give you great peace and comfort. Early on in um, the, the life of Jesus, it's recorded for us in, in Mark uh, chapter 2. Jesus had started his home base in the town of Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, Troy probably is going to be there in, in a day or two, you know, with some folks from your church that are visiting. I, I've been there many times. They've excavated this city, and, and they found the synagogue where Jesus preached out of and, and, the, and the place where Jesus healed many people. Uh, he, he launched his public ministry there in Capernaum, and crowds gathered around him. And it's so many that he had to go into some of the more remote areas. And when he came back in Mark chapter 2, it's recorded that people showed up because Jesus was speaking to them God's words and he was bringing healing to people's lives. And a huge crowd gathered around and there was a paralyzed guy in the city. And because he was paralyzed, he couldn't get to Jesus. But he had four friends who cared so much about him, they knew we got to get our buddy to Jesus. So they picked him up. He's on a pallet. They picked him up and they came and there's this crowd and they can't get to Jesus because of the crowd. But the homes in those days were built with these outside staircases up to the, to the roof, and the, and the roof was made of thatch with kind of mud and clay. They pick the guy up, they climb up the stairs, they get up on the roof, they kind of walk over to where they think, okay, Jesus is right down here, he's standing in the doorway, and then everybody else is out there. And they start digging through the roof. And you can almost picture the scene, Jesus is speaking, and stuff is falling on his head, and he goes, What? And he steps over, and these guys, these four guys that are very creative and innovative and concerned about their friend, they bring him right down in front of Jesus, in front of the crowd. So this is the scene. The guy's paralyzed. He can't walk. Helpless in, him, in his own self to get to Jesus. Four friends care about him. They bring him to Jesus. He's laying on the mat. Jesus looks at him. Now, if you're in the crowd and you're seeing that, what is this guy's presenting need say it what does he need he's paralyzed so what does he need he needs to be able to walk this is what it says in mark chapter 2 jesus looks down at him and says my son your sins are forgiven i always read that and thought if i was a guy i'd feel gypped <laughs> i came here to be able to walk you know now, the text goes on and says Jesus had authority and does heal him, and it occasions a whole conversation with the religious crowd, and the conversation really hinges on what is the real need that people have? Because Jesus exposes that even when someone has this huge presenting need, like they're paralyzed, their real need is to have their sins forgiven. That's my real need, and that's your real need, too. Every one of us has all kinds of presenting issues, but our deepest need is spiritual. 
Our deepest needs to be reconciled to God. Our deepest need is to be forgiven and loved and accepted and restored to God. And Jesus sees that, and Jesus meets that need. See, Jesus saw the crowd. And by the way, sometimes I think we we picture in our minds what that crowd must have looked like. Uh, I've had the privilege of traveling all over the world. And I remember when I was in India, huge crowds would gather. and, And the people, bless their hearts, were so poor and broken, no clean water, uh, many of them not having food for that, for that day, very little shelter, no medical uh, uh, needs, and, and the opportunity for education or better their life. You know, and, and many times I think I read the Bible and I think that's the kind of crowd that Jesus was looking at, and therefore it's easy for me to see how he saw them in their need. I don't think that was the kind of crowd. I think it was a normal crowd, like this crowd. I think it was a crowd like if we were at Lambeau Field in football season watching a Packer game. I think it was that kind of crowd. You've you got the up-and-outers and the down-and-outers. you got the educated and the uneducated. you got the white-collar people and the blue-collar people. You just, you know, it's like going to the DMV where it's the great equalizer, right? It's, everybody's there. <laughs> Jesus sees everybody for who they really are. And here's the deal. If we're going to live like Jesus, we need to see as Jesus saw. Not be fooled by the presenting issue. See, because every one of us, we see some people and we think, they're, I mean, I, I, I'm just real. I'm not, this is not, this is not, you can earn me any spiritual credibility in, in your eyes, I know. But some people we all see and we kind of go, I don't want to hang out with that person. They're a loser. And then there are other people, man, they're cool. They got it together. They're living the good life. I mean, I live in, I live in South Orange County in, in California. I live in a place where, you know, there's a story about a guy who was driving on the coast highway, and he had a car wreck, and he came up from, from, the, from the beach where he had the car wreck, and, and he's going, you know, my Beamer, my Beamer, my Beamer. And somebody said, your Beamer, forget it, you lost your arm. My Rolex, my Rolex, my Rolex. <laughs> Everybody wants to be the beautiful person. Jesus sees beyond whatever the presenting issue is, whether you're an up and out or a down and out or somewhere in between. And he, and he sees people's hearts. And if we're going to live like Jesus, we need to see as Jesus saw. We need to see people, they're just like us. Everybody's just like us. Listen, I've been all over the world and people are just like us. We're all the same on the inside. We've got the same pains, the same hurts, the same doubts. The, the, the same fears, the same confusions, the same struggles, the same joys, the same aspirations. And Jesus sees that. And if we're going to live like Jesus, we need to see as Jesus saw. We need to see people the way Jesus sees people. We need to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us. Living like Jesus means we, we see as Jesus saw. Secondly, it, it means we need to feel as Jesus felt. We need to feel as Jesus felt. So Jesus comes to this town. He's with his apostles. He's with his disciples. And uh, he sees the crowd as distressed and downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. And says, and he felt compassion. That's a great word, compassion. In fact, it's a word that Matthew uses quite a few times to describe kind of what was the motivation for Jesus' involvement. You'll, you'll find scriptures in, 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 in the Gospel of Matthew where it says, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. 
Filled with compassion, Jesus healed, to, healed them. Filled with compassion, Jesus spoke to the crowd. So compassion was the, the emotional motivation for Jesus' contact with people. And if we're going to live like Jesus, we need to see as Jesus saw, we need to feel as Jesus felt. Now this word compassion is, is, is a very unique word. Um, let me give you a little lesson in New Testament Greek. New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, by the way, the Bible, well, the most unique book ever written. Written over a period of 1,500 years in three languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek. Written by 40-plus authors. Written in different life situations. But one continuous theme, God's love for us and his plan to restore us back into a relationship with himself. New Testament is written in Greek. And the word for compassion, the Greek word for compassion, is the word splangizomai. You know, there's some words you just like to say, like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Splangizomai. Say that with me. Splangizomai. Then it just kind of flows off your tongue. It's a word that was a made-up word. Because the Greek culture didn't have a word for compassion because they were compassionless. So describing how Jesus interacted with people, the writer, Matthew here, takes this word, splagna, it's the root word, Splagna described your guts, literally, your lower intestines, your bowels. Splangizomai is a verb that means the moving of your intestines, the moving of your gut. Because this is what the writer of Scripture is wanting us to understand. When we feel something with great depth of emotion, we say in our culture, I feel it with all my heart. What Matthew's trying to describe about Jesus when he saw people, he felt it in his gut. He cared so much about people. He saw their needs. Remember, because you've got to see as Jesus saw. He saw them as distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And seeing the real need, not just the presenting need, but the real need, the spiritual need, it moved him with compassion. And the word compassion, as it's used in the New Testament, isn't just a feeling, it's a feeling that is always attached to action. Move with compassion, he reached out and touched him. Move with compassion, he healed him. Move with compassion, he spoke to them. We need to see as Jesus saw, and we need to feel as Jesus felt. That means it's, a, it's a, an emotional response to the real needs of people. Well, we really care. We care. We allow ourselves to care. I tell you, I, I led a group of men, we, we do it now every year, uh, to, to Haiti on a, on a men's mission trip. Haiti is not just a third world country, it's a fourth world country. That's how bad it is. And, and we've, we've started a, a group of orphanages where we're rescuing children off the street and, and taking care of them and feeding them and clothing them and giving them medical attention and raising them in a, in a loving environment and helping them come to know Jesus. And we, our, our goal is we want to raise a whole new generation of world changers that would change the culture of Haiti. But I'll tell you a very dangerous prayer to pray. Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart and make me excited about the things that make you excited. That's a dangerous prayer to pray because God will answer that. 
And when our hearts are broken with the things that break God's heart, that's when we're experiencing compassion. And if your heart is broken with the things that break God's heart, you don't just have a feeling, oh, I feel bad. You've got to do something about it. You've got to help people. You've got to touch them with God's love. You've got to restore them. You've got to encourage them. You've got to share the good news of Jesus with them. You've got to bring healing into their life. You've got to do whatever you can do to help them take next steps. See, compassion is this great word. Now, when I was a kid growing up, this, this dates me. My wife hates it when I do this. Well, she's not here, so I can do whatever I want. Um, I'm 58 years old, but it's okay. I got the body of a 57-year-old. But uh, when I was a kid growing up, my favorite TV program was Star Trek, the original Star Trek. So Captain Kirk, man, that dude was a stud. So you had Captain Kirk, and there was always a guy with Captain Kirk who beamed down, who was, you know, the nameless, you know, guy, crewman. That guy always died. So you didn't want to be the nameless crewman who beamed down to the planet with Captain Kirk. There's this episode called The Empath. Captain Kirk beams down to the planet with the nameless crewman who dies. And these, these people on this planet, they capture him, and they do all these tests. They subject him to different kind of tortures. And then there's a, a, a woman who is known as the empath, and, and whenever they would, they would do some kind of torture to Captain Kirk, she would reach over and, and touch him, and she would like absorb all of his pain. She would feel exactly what he's feeling, both physically and emotionally, and then she would take it on herself. And in taking it on herself, she relieved and took it away from Captain Kirk. Do you know this is exactly what Jesus does? He sees us spiritually, emotionally, physically broken, needy, because he sees beyond the facade. He sees what we really need. He touches us. And not only does he, he feel that, in, in feeling it, he, he takes it from us. He bears our burden. He heals us, restores us, forgives us. Now, that's what Jesus does. And if we're going to live like Jesus, we need to see as Jesus saw. We need to feel as Jesus felt. We need to be willing to have our hearts broken with the things that break God's heart. And our hearts excited about the things that excite God's heart. Yesterday, there was a bunch of men in this place, and a bunch of men had their lives transformed and were, were baptized, making a statement like, hey, many of them were, were, were baptized as infants. That was a great statement of their parents' faith, but they wanted to say, I want to make a statement about my own faith. That excites God when people's lives are transformed. It excites God when people say yes to Jesus. It excites God when people put his word into practice. It excites God when people demonstrate his love. It excites God when people live out their faith. We need to be people who have our hearts broken by the things that break God's heart and get excited about the things that excite God. Because if we're going to live like Jesus, we need to see as Jesus saw and we need to feel as Jesus felt. Um, several years ago, I think it was like late 80s, maybe early 90s, there's this Kevin Costner movie, Field of Dreams, about a guy who's living in some field, I think in Iowa somewhere, and uh, he hears a voice, if you build it, they will come. No, if you build it, he will come. So he, you know, tries to figure out what that means, and then in the course of the movie, he builds a baseball field, and all these old baseball players come up and show, and he, they're playing out there. He's one of these kind of fantasy movies, and he's kind of involved in the whole thing, but he still can't figure out what, the, what it was meant when it says, if you build it, he will come. 
So it comes to the end of the movie, and through a whole course of events, he realizes the he is his father, who had been a baseball player when he was a young man, and one of the guys that was playing baseball in this field was his father as a young man. And so there's this poignant scene at the end of the movie where he walks out onto the baseball field and picks up a baseball and a, a glove and says to his dad, who's a young man, you want to play catch? I'm watching this movie. I'm with my wife. We're at the theater. And I'm, I like Kevin Costner, you know, I and mean, this is before Waterworld. Uh, <laughs> I'm enjoying the movie. I played baseball. I like these fantasy movies. You know, it kind of takes you to another you know, world, and you kind of imagine yourself, oh, wouldn't it be cool if things like that happened? I'm watching this movie, and he realized, that's my dad. And he goes out, and you want to play catch. I start bawling. Not just like, you know, you know, little misty-eyed. I mean bawling. Big moon tears. Just boom, boom, boom. My wife is looking at me, you okay? I'm okay, I'm okay. <laughs> so just watch Kevin Costner. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, why are you bawling? And comes to me. My dad died when I was nine years old. And I thought, my gosh, the opportunity to play catch with your dad and maybe restore something that was broken or regain something that was lost. Yeah, I, I don't know what your emotional trigger may be. I don't know what pain you maybe have experienced in life. I do know that there's something because it's a common human condition, because we don't live in the garden anymore. Sin, brokenness, pain, dysfunction, it's affect every one of us, and every person. The people in India, the people in Haiti, the people who go to Lambeau Field, the people who come to this church. And if we're going to live like Jesus, we've got to see as Jesus saw and feel. Jesus gives us permission to feel. To feel as Jesus felt. It also means we need to pray as Jesus prayed. Because it says in this passage, verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Boy, the optimism of Jesus. He sees all these people, and because he could see their real spiritual need, could see beyond the presenting issue, he saw every person as a potential candidate to be touched by God. Every person as, as someone who had the potential to give their life to Jesus Christ. Every person as someone who could become a world changer for God. Every person who could be restored and, and could be given dignity and forgiveness and love and, and could become a true disciple of Jesus. He saw every person as, as a potential Respondee to that, and so he said to his followers, his key men, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. In other words, what Jesus said is, there's no problem with the harvest, it's with the laborers. Jesus basically says that people are more open and responsive to hear than those of us who have the message are willing to go and communicate it. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, let your light shine before men that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I know in our church, I tell people, if you know how to build a friendship, 
you can be a great witness and servant of Christ. Just build a relationship with people. That's it. And then you live an authentic life before people. They see the real deal in you, and then they go, what is it about your life? Because something is real. That's being contagious. But to be contagious, you've got to have the real disease. So we need to see as Jesus saw. We need to feel as Jesus felt. We need to pray as Jesus prayed. Last uh, 25 years, I've been teaching part-time at Biola University, Talbot Seminary. It's Bible college and seminary in, in Southern California. And uh, I, teach, I teach theology and apologetics, which is kind of the defense of the Christian faith. And uh, every year at the beginning of the semester, I've got students in my class, sometimes, you know, 50, 60, 70, sometimes 100, 110, 120. I go through the different requirements for the class. I talk about the different books that are going to be required, what are the assignments, uh, and uh, what the objectives are for the class. And then I look at the class, and then I say, now let me tell you why I'm really teaching this class. I got a real job. I'm a pastor, and I speak at different places. I don't need another thing to do. And they don't pay me enough to make me do this. The reason I'm here is Jesus said this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. My real reason for being here is I'm praying that in this semester, I will be able to infect you with a love for God and a love for people so that you'll leave this class and many of you would be willing to go to the ends of the earth as laborers in the harvest. And so it's a Christian college and it's Christian content. It's teaching theology. Beginning of each class, I open with prayer. So every class, every week, when I pray for the class and as I pray for students and their needs and I pray for what we're going to be talking about that evening, I always pray, Lord, I pray that of our class, you'll raise up laborers, men and women who go to the ends of the earth as your servants, as your witnesses, as laborers in the harvest. I, I pray that every week. The end of the semester, every year, I give my final exam and I have an extra credit question. And the extra credit question is this. What did the professor pray for you every week in every class that would happen in your life? And the answer is that I'd be a laborer in the harvest to go to the ends of the earth as a witness for Jesus Christ. You say, JP, why do you do that? It's I'm convinced that what Jesus says is true. The harvest is plentiful. You know, this morning, the harvest is plentiful. There's many of you here this morning hearing God say something to you about your life, about your marriage, about your parenting, about your finances, about your, your trust in God, about some secret, about some addiction, about some struggle. And, and your heart is really open. You want to do what God is calling you to do. You want to take that next step in your spiritual journey. The harvest is plentiful here. And also, here, there are some laborers. There's some people here who God is touching you to say, I want you to be my representative in this church, in this community, in this generation. See, if we're going to live like Jesus, we need to see as Jesus saw. We need to feel as Jesus felt. We need to pray as Jesus prayed. We need to pray great things to a great God, expecting great things. And we need to do as Jesus did. 
We need to do as Jesus did. It says this in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. That's what Jesus did. Then he addresses his followers, his disciples, and then he commissions them out. And in Luke chapter 10, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter in town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely have you received, freely give. So Jesus shared God's word brought healing to people's lives, brought freedom to people who were oppressed and captives. He then says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, pray to the Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into the harvest, and then he called his followers to be the answers to their own prayers, and he sent them out as laborers. And guess what they did? They taught the word, they brought healing to people's lives, and they helped captives be set free. They just did what Jesus did. They did what Jesus did. See, we're to see as Jesus saw, we're to pray as Jesus prayed, feel as Jesus felt. We're to do as Jesus did. We're to, we're to live out our faith. We're to, we're to speak his word. We're to pray for healing into people's lives. We're to help people find freedom. Now, we're not Jesus, but we can be like the friends who picked up the pallet of the paralyzed guy and bring people to Jesus You know, I like to say something profound in every message. I think I just said it. I think that was it. If you're taking notes, I think that's it. That's right. We can't be Jesus. I'm going to say it again. We can't be Jesus, but we can bring people to Jesus. You know, Jesus reduced everything down to two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what was the second one? Yeah, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's, that's really what I'm talking about in this message. Just, you know, see as Jesus saw, feel as Jesus felt, pray as Jesus prayed, do as Jesus did, really is that. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as, as you love yourself. But, you know, you can't, you can't give away what you don't got. In, in John 7, 37 to 39... Uh, Jesus gave this invitation. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, for he who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this commentary. This Jesus spoke about the Spirit whom he had not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus says to thirsty people, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who comes to me and drink and believes in me, he says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Have you ever been thirsty? It, it, I said this in, in the first service, and it's true. About this time, as a communicator speaker, I'm up here, been speaking about 30 minutes. I'm, I'm feeling thirsty right now. Thirst is kind of like you, you feel it in your lips and your tongue and your, your mouth and kind of in the back of your throat. Feeling thirsty, though, isn't the same thing as being dehydrated. I mean, they, they may be similar, but hydration has more to do with your body's need for water. Thirsty is kind of like what you just kind of feel. Jesus said, I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
I used to look at that passage and go, well, everybody is thirsty. I mean, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, intellectually, relationally. So why wouldn't everybody be coming to Jesus and drinking? I, um, I like to drink coffee. I mean, if I knew then what I know now, I'd invested all my money in Starbucks years ago. But I like to drink coffee. I've had several cups of coffee this morning. You know, coffee satisfies your thirst, but doesn't hydrate you. You're actually going to learn something about science in this class right here. Right here. Uh, because of the caffeine in, in coffee, it, it actually inhibits hydration. So you can drink a cup of coffee. The feeling of thirst is satisfied, but your body's need for hydration is not. There are people, many of us, maybe some of us here, who are going to whatever is presented to us by the world to satisfy our thirst, but it doesn't hydrate. And so we think we're okay because we're no longer thirsty, and therefore we're not really coming to Jesus, but we're not really okay because we're not being hydrated. And if you're not hydrated, you die. Jesus satisfies our thirst and he hydrates us, you see? If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. When I was in, when I was in high school, uh, I shared with the guys uh, yesterday, you know, I, I played football like a lot, a lot of guys here. And uh, in California in August, football gets rolling and it's double days. We call it hell week. And it's like about 100 degrees. It's hot, sweaty. Thirsty. I, I played football at a time when they, you know, the coaches felt like you know, real men didn't take water breaks. So we would practice two, three, four hours with no water. I mean, you're losing a lot of water just from practicing. You need to be hydrated, and you're thirsty. I remember one year, this is my senior year, it's so hot, we're out there, and, and the coach kind of pulled us together for a little pep talk. I'm standing there, I'm just like dying. I'm dying, I'm thirsty, I'm going, oh my gosh. And I look over, and there's a sprinkler, and the, early that morning, the, it had watered the grass, and around the sprinkler was this water, but, you know, it's kind of brown, and grass was floating in it. When you're thirsty, you're desperate. I bent my head down, put my head and my helmet into that puddle of water, and just drank it, and, oh, and it tasted so good. You can't give away what you don't got. If you're looking to a relationship, you're looking to money, you're looking to a career, you're looking to being self-actualized, you're looking to something other than Jesus to satisfy your thirst, well, it may temporarily, but it won't really satisfy you, and it definitely won't hydrate you. And you won't have anything to give away to anybody else. But if you are thirsty and you come to Jesus, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But what do those rivers of living water do? It's the water of Jesus coming into your life, and it's flowing out. And guess what? It's flowing out to someone else. And that's what we're talking about, living like Jesus. That means we see as Jesus saw, we feel as Jesus felt, we pray as Jesus prayed, we do as Jesus did. You can't give away what you don't have. You've got to come to Jesus and let Jesus satisfy your thirst, and let Jesus fill up your life, and then out of Jesus filling up your life, you live like Jesus, you do as Jesus did, and guess what? You're not Jesus, but you can bring other people to Jesus. You can reflect Jesus. You can point people to Jesus.
Yesterday we talked with the men about the whole idea that it's about surrender. It's really surrendering our lives. And that's a, I, I really believe that's a metaphor personally. I, I believe everybody's on a spiritual journey. God meets us right where we are on our journey. But when God meets us and reveals himself to us and speaks to us, the response that we're to have is a response of surrender. Learning to live like Jesus, seeing as Jesus saw and, and feeling as Jesus felt and, and uh, praying as Jesus prayed and doing as Jesus did, for each one of us to embrace that is going to mean there's an act of surrender. As we bring this worship service to a close, my teaching portion to a close, there's a response, a response of surrender. And I've come to understand here at Green Bay Community Church, as part of the worship service, we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. You know, that's an act of surrender. It's not just a religious ritual. Jesus said these elements represent his body and his blood. And when we receive these elements, we're, we're making a confession that we believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did. We're, we're saying we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead. We believe that there's life in Jesus' name. We're receiving that life. And we receive Jesus' life not just to have it for ourselves. We receive Jesus' life to give it away. To give it away. So it's an act of surrender. I'm going to have Bobby and the worship team come back up here. We're going to be dismissed to receive the elements. They're in the stations here around our auditorium. And let me encourage you, as you, as you take the Lord's Supper, as you receive the elements, ask Jesus, how do you want me to surrender your, my life to you today? How do you want me to be able to see as you saw, to feel as you felt, to pray as you prayed, to do as you did. What's my act of surrender in worship as I receive your grace into my life? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that we are here because of Jesus, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. We thank you, Jesus, that you died and you rose again, and your grace is offered freely to all who would receive it. We thank you that we can live like you and follow you as we receive you into our lives and allow you to live through us. And I pray that you would lead us to our act of surrender in worship, to your glory, to the blessing of others, and to our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.